Is there a time that you can think of that maybe a moment of your life that solidified your faith for you? Maybe it was a game changer, a turning point. A lot of us might have a moment or maybe a person that, that showed up at the right time that was a game changer for you. You know, I grew up in a family that church was a very much a priority. We went to church very faithfully and the Christian values were always an influence in my family. So I'm very grateful for that foundation and that upbringing. But when I was 18, I met a person who became sort of a game changer in my faith, and her name is Linda, and I want to tell you about Linda. I graduated from high school in June of 1989, and I know somebody's trying to think right now, doing the math in your head. I'm 51. I'll do it for you. June of 1989, and I had plans to go to college in the fall at the University of Toledo, so um, that June, after I graduated, we had college orientation. And some of you might remember doing that, where you just go for a couple nights and you stay in the dorm and you walk around and take a tour and do your entrance exams. And, and part of that is walking around and seeing all the different organizations represented on campus. So I was walking around the uni University of Toledo and, and honestly, I was a little nervous and overwhelmed and just... You know, you get all those fears when you're kind of away from home for the first time. And, and, and I'm sure I must have looked like that. And I heard somebody say, hi. And, and I kind of looked over and, and she said hi again. And, and she was a kind looking girl with a nice smile. And so I walked over just to say hi. And, and she introduced herself. She said her name was Linda. And we talked for probably 20 minutes. I couldn't tell you what we talked about, but she was sitting at a table with a big banner that said InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Well, at the end of our conversation, I didn't know much about InterVarsity Christian Fellowship or just a Christian organization in general. In fact, if I'm being honest, I was a little skeptical because that wasn't something I was familiar with. It wasn't part of my background. But I talked to her, and, and she was very, very kind. And at the end of our conversation, she said, when you move in in the fall, I'll come find you. We're going to go get some ice cream. She said, there's this great ice cream place on the corner at the front of campus. It's the best in town. I will come get you. We'll go get some ice cream together. And in my head, you know, I was thinking it was one of those, like, well, we'll do lunch sometime, right? And I just thought, okay, whatever. I'll never see her again. Well, I thought about Linda on and off a couple times, I guess, through the summer, but sort of forgot about all of that. And the day came, we're going to fast forward to, to September when I moved into my dorm. And, you know, that was tough for me. I was really close to my parents, and I still am very close to them. And so it, it was tough when I watched them drive away, and there I was on my own in my dorm for the first time in college. And, and for the first time, I really felt fairly alone. And maybe... An hour after I moved in, the phone rang in my dorm room. I didn't know I had a phone. And I did, definitely didn't know what my phone number was, but my phone rang. So I answered it, and it was Linda. And to this day, I don't know how she found me or my phone number. I don't know, but she did. And she said, I'm coming to your room. We're going to get that ice cream. And to, to add to that for me was that it was pouring rain that day. And Linda came, Linda came to my room and she took me for ice cream in the pouring rain 
because she made a promise. And what really stood out for me in that moment, besides the fact that I had my first college friend, which I was super excited about, was that she did what she said she was going to do. Because a lot of times, that doesn't really happen, does it? We just utter out empty promises. But she actually showed up. And Linda and I became great friends, and she took me under her wing. And in fact, I became a, a part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and that really started me out on my faith journey. Linda showed me what it was like and what it meant to really follow Jesus and to seek Jesus and to get into the Word. And Linda is just a very important part of my testimony and always will be because really she was the kickstart. And, and I'm forever grateful for that. How did I know I could trust Linda? Well, I really didn't until she showed up and she made good on a promise. I've always thought of her as my hero in the faith. We're going to talk about another hero of faith today. And he's, he's in the Bible, but he's not found in Hebrews chapter 11. If you're familiar with that, that's kind of, we call it the Hall of Fame of Faith Heroes. And it's got all these Old Testament um, people who did these amazing things. Enoch and Moses and Noah and Abraham. And the list goes on. And these uh, Old Testament people who did these incredibly faithful and maybe even somewhat crazy things because they heard the voice of God. Well, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have Jesus. They didn't have a church family. They didn't have the internet. They only had the voice of God to go on. And in their cases, God spoke to them and said, do this, and they did. And these were big acts of faith, like Noah building this massive ark, when everybody ridiculed him and mocked him, but he persevered, built that ark. That was, that's, we call it the Hall of Fame of Faith Heroes. Well, the one we're going to talk about today is not in there. And I think you'll see why when we hear his story. Thomas, Thomas the Disciple, also known more familiarly to us as Doubting Thomas. We're going to talk about him. The reason Thomas is kind of a hero to me is because, in reality, he's a lot like me, or I'm a lot like him. I think all of us here today have some connection to faith, right? Whether we've been in the church for a long time, we've been believers for years, maybe you're new on this journey and you've been coming to church for a while, maybe you're just curious about faith. But all of us have some connection to faith or we wouldn't be here today. The faith that we have, each of us, is very individual, right? It's, it's filtered through our life experiences, our childhood, our upbringing, our culture, news, social media, maybe tragedies, th things that we've experienced. All of these experiences of our lives are filters for our faith. Whether we want that to be true or not, that usually is the case. And those are influences on our faith. And I think for, for a lot of us, or maybe all of us, there are times in our life where we could pinpoint moments where maybe we stepped out of faith a little bit. Whether we prayed for something and it didn't happen, or 
we just got distracted and sidetracked in life, there are moments of time where we, we step out of faith a little bit. Maybe not in a drastic way, maybe just a little, or maybe we're just not paying attention, but we do have those moments. I know for myself, those moments have come if I've been praying for something for a long time, praying and praying and praying, and I just feel maybe like God's not moving. I think those have been moments for me where maybe my faith gets a little rocked. But I think for us to understand a faith that helps us see the truth, we need to understand a couple things that faith is not. And one thing that faith is not is not a formula. You know, I I think, I know that for myself and maybe all of us have this tendency to think it's sort of formulaic, right? Like this much faith plus this much prayer will equal a result. And when we don't see the result that we're looking for, we think, oh, I didn't pray hard enough. I didn't pray long enough. My faith wasn't big enough. And we sort of put it back on ourselves, right? But that's not God's idea of faith. God said if we have faith as small as a mustard seed, we can move a mountain. So it's not a formula where this plus this equals this. Faith is also not a feeling. And I think that is a hard one for many of us, myself included. You know, we have a tendency to to think if we feel God's presence, our faith is strong. And if we don't, maybe we are a little weak in our faith. Our feelings change on a dime, don't they? I know mine are influenced by if I'm tired, if I'm hungry, if I stayed up too late, if something happened at work. Our feelings change on a dime. And our faith cannot be influenced by those feelings. I like to listen to Pastor Alistair Begg. He's a pastor at a church in Cleveland. And it is called, I think it's called Parkside Church. And he was born in Scotland. I've been practicing my Scottish accent all week. That didn't come out as good as I wanted it to. Thank you. You need to listen to Alistair Begg. He's way better at the Scottish accent because he's from Scotland. I'm I'm from America. But he he also has a radio broadcast. And one of the things that he says, which I, I love, he's known to say, don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. Don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. And here's where our faith needs to come from because this doesn't change on a dime. And this isn't a formula. I think for most of us, definitely myself, what real faith, faith that helps us see the truth, what that comes from is evidence. We are people that are wired to need evidence. You know, I believe the sun's going to come up tomorrow because I've seen it happen every day for 51 years, right? I, I know that. I have faith in that. I have faith that if I have an emergency, if my car breaks down or something's wrong, I can call Chip and he will always come because I've seen him do that over and over. I have evidence of that. When we see something and we experience it for ourselves, it gives us evidence and it helps us put our faith in it and believe in it. And I think we're people that are wired for needing evidence. But what if I haven't experienced something personally? 
it's a little harder to believe, right? You know, I could say, God heals. But if I've never seen it, or if I've never read testimonies of Jesus healing people in the Word, it's a little harder for me to believe. We need evidence for our faith to be solid. Thomas, that we like to call Doubting Thomas, is one of those people that needed evidence to believe and have strong, solid faith. Thomas was one of the disciples, one of the 12 disciples, and he had been with Jesus throughout Jesus' ministry. And I don't think skeptic is the right word, but I think it's fair to say Thomas was a questioner. Thomas was somebody that needed things to be just a bit more literal. He needed some more hard evidence for, in order to believe, in order for his faith to be solid. Some of us, and I see this a lot as a teacher, they always have students who will just go along with anything and they're fine. They don't need all the details, but then there's always students who do. They need to know what the whole plan is in order to feel that security. And I think that's who Thomas is. We're going to look at his story today in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. But before we do, I just want to give you a little background into his character. So as one of the disciples... We, we actually don't know a whole lot about him. He's not overly prominent in the Bible, but we do know a couple of things. He was fiercely loyal, and he was a questioner. And in John chapter 11, this sort of, this sort of gives a little picture of, of his loyalty to Jesus. In John chapter 11, Jesus is planning a, a return trip to Jerusalem, and at this point in his ministry, People are after him. They want to hurt him. They want to kill him. The religious leaders have had enough of him. They saw him as a blasphemer and a lawbreaker. They wanted him dead. And Jesus is planning a return trip to Jerusalem. And the disciples say to him, Jesus, no, you can't go. They want to stone you. You need to stay put. And Thomas says in that moment, let us go with him also that we may die with him. Thomas was that loyal. While the rest of them were saying, Jesus, no, you need to stay here, Thomas said, we need to go with him, even if that means we have to die with him. So I, I believe Thomas was fiercely loyal. And a few chapters later, John 14, the Last Supper, this is where I think we can honestly say that he was a, a questioner. In John chapter 14, this was the Last Supper, and Jesus says something that kind of throws Thomas off a bit. It doesn't really make sense to him. Jesus says, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Well, that left Thomas a little confused. So he asks an honest question and he says, how can we know the way? And Jesus' response, which is probably one of the more famous Bible verses, Jesus' response was, I am the way and the truth and the life. So I, I think we can say Thomas was a thinker and Thomas was a questioner, and he's somebody that maybe just needed things to be a little more literal for him to say, okay, I can buy into that. So we're going to look at his story today in John chapter 20, verses 
19 through 29. And to set the scene, this is right after Jesus was crucified. We know this as Good Friday. Jesus was crucified under, on the cross. And three days later, on what we call Easter, he rose from the dead. And when we pick up the story, so far he's only appeared to Mary Magdalene the morning of his resurrection. Now this is the evening of that, and he appears to the disciples. So this is John chapter 20, 19 through 29. And the interesting thing is Thomas wasn't there for this. It says this, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Verse 26, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas explained. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. There's a lot in those verses. We don't know why Thomas wasn't with them, but he was the only one that wasn't there. Doesn't say where he was or why he wasn't there. And maybe he was just fearful. A lot had happened in three days. But we do know that right after the disciples saw Jesus, they ran and told Thomas. And can you imagine what that conversation looked like? It wasn't probably, hey, Thomas, we just saw Jesus. I bet you they burst in there, Thomas, Thomas, you're never going to believe this. We've seen the Lord. We've seen Jesus. And I'm trying to imagine what that looked like. And the Bible says Thomas's response was, I won't believe unless I see it. But I, I kind of don't think it was so matter-of-fact. I think it was probably much more like, what? Are you serious? Nuh-uh. No, you didn't. You know, and if it was today, we'd say, show me the selfie. Right? We'd want some proof. I have to wonder, is that so very different from what I would have said? From what any of us would have said? Should Thomas really have been labeled doubting Thomas for the rest of time? I, I like to think of him as everyman Thomas or normal guy Thomas because I think his reaction was the same one I would have had and maybe most of us would have had. Back from the dead? Are you kidding me? You saw him. 
You know, they, they had been with Jesus for three years and seen all kinds of miracles and powerful, mighty acts. But back from the dead in the same room, it's a little different, doesn't it? And, you know, I guess I always thought, you know, as a kid reading that, you always thought Thomas was sort of set apart because he wasn't there. He didn't believe. Well, the other disciples were not actually any different. They believed because they saw Jesus in front of them. They just got to see him first. That was the only difference. Here's the most interesting thing to me. Thomas wasn't there. So Jesus came back again eight days later so that Thomas could see him and could put his hands into his side and the nail prints in his hands. He came back to meet with the disciples a second time so that Thomas could get the evidence that he needed to believe. And I believe Jesus did that because he loved Thomas that much. He wanted to validate Thomas's faith. Jesus wasn't even a part of that conversation when the disciples told him, but Jesus knew, and he showed up. And you know what? Jesus didn't chastise him. He didn't kick him out of the disciples. He didn't say, hey, Thomas, your faith wasn't good enough. He didn't do any of that. And as a result of Jesus coming to see Thomas again, to see the disciples again and to show Thomas. Thomas was the disciple to put into words the truth of the divinity of Jesus for the first time. His response was, my Lord and my God. Thomas was the first person to articulate that Jesus was both Lord and God. The biggest doubter, utters the firmest proclamation in the entire Bible. Thomas's doubts vanished in the presence of the living Christ. The greatest doubter obtained the firmest belief. Why? Because he had evidence, because he experienced it for himself. He had a solid reason to believe and put his faith in the risen Christ. Maybe you have heard of Lee Strobel. He was the author of The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, Lee Strobel, and other books. Lee was, or for a long time, the editor of the Chicago Tribune and a very outspoken atheist. Lee wanted nothing to do with Jesus or the Bible or church, and he made sure everybody knew that. And Lee has a very powerful testimony, and he's, he's not shy about sharing the fact that he was an alcoholic, and he made life very difficult for his daughter, his young daughter, and his wife. But Lee wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And in the late 70s, Lee's wife started going to church. Someone invited her to church, and she became a Christian. Well, as you can imagine, Lee was not happy about this news. And he set out, he spent two years trying to disprove Christianity because he wanted to show his wife she was wrong. And Lee traveled all over the world. He talked to scholars, scientists, archaeologists. 
And his goal was to disprove the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in those two years of interviewing people all over the world, the opposite happened. Lee came to realize there was so much evidence for the death and resurrection and the life of Jesus that he said, I can no longer deny that this is true. And Lee became a believer, and he went on to pastor a church, and he's a professor of theology, and he's written all these books. And if you, if you have never read The Case for Christ, no matter where you're at in your walk with the Lord, I highly recommend it. I read it years ago as someone who had been a believer for, for years, and the, the evidence in that book is so compelling. It will just lock your faith in even more, no matter where you're at. So I highly recommend it. But Lee had this to say, if I had stopped asking questions, that's where I would have remained. It's okay to ask. It's okay to have moments of doubt or moments where we just need to say, Lord, I want to believe you're doing something here, but I just need a little more. I need a little more hard evidence. Or maybe it's just simply to believe at all. Lord, I want to believe in you. I just need a little more. Jesus blames no one for wanting to be sure. But here's the thing. When we ask for that, when we ask for that affirmation, for that validation, he's going to show up, but we have to be willing to respond. We have to be willing to do something with it. Thomas's response was to acknowledge that Jesus was both Lord and God. And I have a feeling when he declared that, it brought him to his knees. My Lord and my God. No further evidence required for Thomas from that point. I'm sure of it. What would our response be when Jesus shows up to give us some evidence? What will our response be? Will we be able to say, I see it, Lord, my Lord and my God. We can't ignore him. It's part of the deal. Psalm 34, verses 4 through 6 says, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. He answers when we ask. Not only does he answer, he says there's no shame. The Bible says there's no shame. Not only is there no shame, it says we will be radiant with joy. This passage alone is enough to tell me it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to ask for validation. And there's no shame in that, and the Lord will provide it and we will be radiant with joy. As a side note, as believers in Jesus, we're going to be faced with opportunities to validate someone else's faith. Just like Linda was for me when she showed up for ice cream on a rainy day in September 1989. 
that one moment changed my entire life. And, you know, a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to attend the commencement ceremony for the school district I teach in. And at the end of it, it was just pouring rain. All my stories involve rain. I don't know. But it was pouring, pouring. And I, I didn't want to go out, so I just I stayed in the foyer. It was, took place at World Harvest Church, and I, I stayed in the foyer and just was kind of watching people and people getting their pictures taken and celebrating. And probably 20 minutes I stood there, and, and this man came up to me while I was standing there. And he said, Miss Elias which was my maiden name. And I said, yeah, and I kind of looked at him, and he looked familiar. He said, my name's Aaron, and, and he told me his name, and, and as soon as he said it, I remembered. And he said, you were my teacher when I was in seventh grade, 18 years ago. It's before I was married. And he said, for 18 years, I've wondered if I would see you anywhere so I could share this with you. And here you are in front of me, in the foyer at World Harvest Church. He was there because his brother was graduating. And he said, 18 years ago on such and such a date, such and such a year, I came to school because, he said the day before that, he got baptized at his church. And he was probably 11, 12 years old. And he said, I came to school and I told all my friends and I was so excited and I wanted them to share my excitement. And he said, you know what? Not one of them cared one bit. He said they didn't give a rip at all. And I wish I could say I remember this moment. I don't. I remember this, the student. I wish I could remember this conversation. But he said, Miss Elias, you quietly walked up to us. You looked me in the eyes. You smiled at me. And you said, I've been baptized too. And you kept walking. And he said, you know, I've never felt so validated in my faith as I did at that moment in seventh grade 18 years ago. And he said, I was wondering if I'd ever see you again to tell you that. I'm telling you now, and I want to thank you. And you know what? That was, having that conversation with him was so impactful to me because it made me so aware that the things that we say and the opportunities the Lord puts in front of us Sometimes it's an ice cream cone. Sometimes it's one sentence, maybe even just a smile. But God is going to continue to give us opportunities to validate someone else's faith. And what an honor that we get to be a part of that and take advantage of those. You never know what your one sentence might do to change somebody's life and be a game changer in somebody's faith. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says, Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. That is a, a call that Jesus, that God has placed on us in the word for us to be paying attention for opportunities that we can help validate someone else's faith going to bring it home with this. Sometimes faith comes easy and sometimes it doesn't. We get rattled off of it for a number of reasons and most of the time outside of our control. A lot of times we just maybe need a little more evidence and it's okay to ask for that. 
we have the great benefit of the Bible and the testimonies, page after page, of the power of God. That's the best evidence, and that's really all I need. I believe every word of it is true. And even though we don't physically get to walk the earth with Jesus, there's enough compelling testimony in the word to keep us going for eternity. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing. That is hearing the good news about Christ. Here's our evidence. Faith comes from this. Faith that helps us see the truth. We have the evidence of the Bible. We also have the evidence of our own testimonies, things that we've seen God doing in our lives that nobody can deny because we've seen it for ourselves and experienced it for ourselves. I was able to trust Linda because she showed up for ice cream. Thomas was able to trust Jesus because he showed up and he showed his hands and his wound in his side. Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do, and he proved himself. He will not condemn us for our doubts. He will not kick us out of the church. He will not cast judgment on us. What he will do is show up and say, here's my nail prints. Put your hand in there. Will we be able to say, my Lord and my God? What we didn't look at was Jesus' response to Thomas at the end of that passage. Jesus had this to say. This was his final response. You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Well, I never really had thought about that too much. I guess the first time I read it, I thought he was talking about the other disciples, but that isn't the case because they saw Jesus. I believe Jesus was pronouncing a declaration of blessing over us. I believe that was a blessing for us because we don't have the luxury of walking the earth physically with Jesus. We are a couple thousand years removed from the events that took place while Jesus was on the earth. But we do have the powerful testimony of the word. And I believe Jesus was pronouncing a blessing over us because we believe without having actually seen him. And that's how much Jesus loves us. His promises are true, and we can allow every word of the Bible to be the evidence that we need to make our faith rock solid in him. Is Jesus showing up today? Has he been trying to get your attention? What will your response be? Will you be able to say, my Lord and my God? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the evidence of the word that we can believe every word of it is true. That you love Thomas enough to show up a second time and show him your scars and your wounds, Lord. And, and I believe and know and I thank you that you're doing the very same for us over and over every time we need you, Lord. And we thank you for that promise and we thank you that you fulfill every promise. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.